I asked my guest for this episode, Stephen, if he'd like to give a shout out to a nonprofit at the start of the show, and he chose The Okra Project, a nonprofit collective that brings home-cooked, healthy, and culturally specific meals and resources to black trans people wherever they can reach them. Learn more at theokraproject.com. And I went to take a shower, and I heard there was a knock at the door. So he went to answer the door. And when I came out, he was sucking on some guy's dick. And I was like, oh, all right, well, don't mind me, boys. Let me just get my boots. I'm going to put my clothes on and go. Masculine tops. Power bottoms. Butch girls. Femboys. Bears. Otters. Unicorns. There is no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences. But how do we navigate that horny, thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles? Fruit Bowl explores the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating, real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex. The embarrassing moments we'd like to forget. And the reliable bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way. Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out. Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. For gay men living in New York City in the 80s and 90s, Sex always seemed to be around the next corner, in a public park, or in a back room. It was in one of these places that Stephen met James, a fearless extrovert who loved the adventure of sex as much as Stephen did. And what started out as a weekend fling became a decades-long friendship. Listening to Stephen describe his friendship with James inspired me to think back on my own cruising experiences in Wichita as I was growing up. I don't really recall much of the sex that I had in those public spaces, but I do recall longing to meet somebody who I could connect with, like a potential friend, somebody who wouldn't judge me. Soon after that, I went to college and came out, and over the years I've met different people in my life who have served as a kind of a family. Stephen's interview is a good reminder that we can often find these people who support us in the most unlikely places. Just a few cliff notes for this episode. You'll hear Stephen mention the DL. And in case you didn't know, DL stands for the down low. And that's just another term for the closet that's typically used in the black community. You'll also hear Stephen mention the ramble a location in Central Park that features winding wooded paths and is a notorious location for public sex for gay men. But it also happens to be the same location where a white woman called the cops on a black bird watcher recently. That event happened on May 25th of this year, the same day that George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. You'll also hear Stephen mention going to a Pride event where Larry Kramer speaks. Larry Kramer was a screenwriter and a playwright who was also a fierce activist in the early days of the AIDS crisis. He founded the groups Gay Men's Health Crisis and ACT UP, which are two organizations that really started like a national conversation about AIDS when nobody really wanted to talk about it. Kramer had a 
reputation for being cantankerous and a bit of a bully, but he also had a very big heart and he cared deeply about the survival of queer people. Sadly, Kramer passed away on May 27th of this year. Just so you know, this episode was recorded in October of 2019, so it won't reference any of these recent events or the coronavirus pandemic. Stephen made a special request for the music I use in this episode. His favorite genre of music is post-punk, and that includes Susie and the Banshees, Bauhaus, Cocktail Twins. But because of music rights, I have to use um, rights-free stock music. So I've kind of chosen tracks that are in the tradition of the post-punk music genre. So without further ado, here's Steven. My name is Steven. I'm 49, and I graduated high school in 1987. In the last 20 years or so, I guess I've hung out a lot in the sort of bear community because I'm a big guy and I like bigger guys. When I discovered the bear community in the early mid-90s, I'm from New York, I was living in New York, um, and the 90s was dominated by what we call the Chelsea Queens, uh, which was an image very much like the Marky Mark, Calvin Klein ads, you know, the, the abs, the shaved bodies and the perfect gym body, you know, all that. And I certainly was not any of that. I was a chubby, chubby, hairless black guy. Then I discovered, like, the bear scene, and it was bigger, chubbier guys and, you know, a, a lot more relaxed about body issues. So I fell into that. I don't really consider myself a bear, but the, the scene as it was then was a, a lot more inviting to me, so... It's funny because now, in a way, it's it's come full circle because now the bear scene has become so mainstream that now there's a lot of... It feels to me like a lot of those guys who in their early to mid-90s were in their 20s and they were part of the whole Marky Mark look, now that they're, they're maybe in their late 40s or 50s, they've decided, oh, you know what? It's easier if I let my body hair grow and I get some facial hair and, and I can be a bear now. And it's like, now it's become like mainstream to be... Whereas back then, I remember there was a little bit of like... Ew, bears, what's that all about? You know, kind of thing. And now it's Bear Week in Provincetown is like the biggest week of the summer there. You know, it's just, it's insane. So. I grew up in New York City. Born in Brooklyn, lived in Brooklyn till I was about 11. And then we moved out to Rosedale, Queens, past JFK Airport. So <laughs> if I wanted to have fun, I had to really trek to come into the city. Um, I lived out there, and then I went to high school in the Bronx. So that was a very, very long commute. I spent a lot of time on the subways of New York City in the 80s. So my family's West Indian. My parents are from Trinidad. The West Indies are not known for a lot of um, inclusive ideas about <laughs> being gay. Uh, it's not quite as bad as, like, Jamaica, where they just, like, will straight up kill you. <laughs> uh, but Trinidad is a little more conservative. When we were in Brooklyn, the first 11 years of my life, we were in East Flatbush. There's a lot of West Indian people who, who live there, and it's just, it's like the second West Indies, basically, from all the different islands they group there. Um, and then we moved to Rosedale, Queens, which, when we moved there, it was... There weren't a lot of actual kids in the neighborhood. I remember there were just a few, and it was, there was a lot of um, old and retired, like, Jewish and Italian families. We were one of, the, one of the first black families in that neighborhood. So, I mean, I interacted with other kids, but 
I didn't really spend a lot of time, social time, in the neighborhood. Like, if I wanted to party or anything, I was always like, let me just get myself into the city and hang out with my friends. I, I went to high school in the Bronx, so my friends were from all over the city, and we tended to hang out and go to nightclubs and stuff in Manhattan. So it was, I would say, a little bit more liberal for me just because I was going to nightclubs and seeing all kinds of stuff, you know, from drag queens to, you know, punk rockers to goth kids to all that stuff. Uh, I'm an only child. My mom and dad, they met when they were 12 years old. They became boyfriend and girlfriend. They got married. They came to this country in 1967, and then I was born in 69. And they remained married until my father died like 10 years ago. So they were married over 40 years. So, yeah, West Indian families and the gay thing, it, I didn't really bring it up too much. I feel kind of silly because I really didn't have that moment where I sat them down and came out to them. My father found out because he saw a picture of me kissing my then boyfriend who was from Amsterdam. When it happened, it was like so shocking. He said something like, are you a faggot? And... I just sort of pushed him out of the room and shoved and shut the door. And then later on, I was really angry that he used that word. And I went to him and I was like, listen, you are never to use that word in my presence ever again. I don't know if you know about West Indian culture, but like you're always the child. No matter how, like I'm almost 50 now and I'm still like the child. So you're never supposed to talk to your parents and like, a, you know. And I don't even remember what his response was because I think I just like turned around and left the room and like we just didn't talk about it after that. I mean, I think about it from his point of view. I mean, I've had a lot of time because he's been dead almost 10 years. I've, from his point of view, he didn't really have um, exposure, access to anything gay or queer or, or anything like that. And so I feel really bad that I didn't really open up to him sooner. I could have had conversations with him that would have enlightened him a lot. You know, and we could have worked through a lot of stuff, but we never got that chance. My mother actually finally met my husband at my god sister's wedding. The next thing I knew, we were at the reception and they were dancing together. And I was like, oh, okay. So she was really kind of, you know, open and accepting about it. But now my mom is like, well, you know, she'll ask me how Richard's doing and all that kind of stuff. So I think she feels like I have no choice and he seems to be happy. So there you go. My dad never really had the talk with me about sex. It was mostly my mom because she was a nurse and she was just, my mom was the one who really told me all about it. With the proper names and the proper, you know, she told me about the birds and the bees, all how everything worked. You know, when you're a kid and you have like kid names for things like, oh, that's your bunkie or your whatever. She would, we had the kid names for body parts, but she also taught me the proper adult names. And also part of it, I think, <laughs> might have been because my father was kind of a nudist, like, he didn't like to wear much clothing or any at all when he was at home, so I was just always seeing him naked. He didn't even like to close the door when he sat on the toilet kind of thing. And if you were in there with the door closed, he would just walk right in, and I'd be like, Dad! He's like, this is my house, you know, kind of thing. He had no boundaries, so. Eventually, when I was a teenager, I had to put a lock on my bedroom door because, you know, as a teenager, you kind of need that. You know, as a little kid, I would take showers with them. So I would just see them naked, and it was, like, not a big thing for me. It was years later when I realized other people were, like, freaked out by, you saw your parents naked? I'm like, oh, well, yeah. It wasn't until later on when I was in school and kids started to make jokes about sex that I realized, oh, there's, like, this whole other component to what it all means, you know? Like, I was also a TV kid, so watching things, ridiculous things like Three's Company, you know, which was all about, like, ridiculous sex jokes. And, you know, thank God I had my mother tell me, like, the basics, the real basics before I started watching TV. I think my dad was okay with that because I think he, he kind of felt a little uncomfortable <laughs> talking about that kind of stuff. My friend David, 
who I grew up with. He was the one who was a year younger than me. We kind of were brothers. At his house, they had cable. We didn't have cable in my house. So, and it also at his house, there were no rules. Like his parents were very relaxed. I would go over to his house and it would be like a free-for-all. We'd stay up all night watching TV and then he had cable and I was a real TV kid. So it was like, he would get mad because he would like to go out and play and all that. I'd be like, but you know, Xanadu is on again. We can watch it again. He's like, you've seen it six times. But of course they had the adult themed movies on cable. So occasionally you'd see like sex, you know, I mean, it wasn't hardcore, but it was still like, and then I'd see like a naked man and it'd be like, oh, okay, I'm settling in to watch this kind of thing. But never really gay stuff. There were a couple of novels that kids used to pass around. I just remember there was this one where this, and it was, uh, the narrator was a, a young woman, and she was like, you know, and she would talk about her experiences, and then she talked about having sex, and then she's, oh, and then I came, and I didn't know what coming meant. And she said it s several times, and I was like, what? I mean, I knew what, a, you know, ejaculation all that was, because my mom had taught me, you know, but I didn't know the term, I came, or coming, or everything. And so I just remember reading this book, and I was like, Okay, so it must have something to do with when it's over or when it ends. It just kind of stuck in my head, and then, you know, years later I figured out what it was all about. But you, yeah. you find your, <laughs> your sources of information. You learned a lot from other kids. I remember one day being in, like, I think seventh grade, and I remember there's this one kid, this boy, he was actually pretty cute now I think about it, but he was kind of like the bad boy in, in the class. There was a girl who sat right in front of me. Um, and I remember one day he pulled out his penis and it was hard and he like stuck it in her face. <laughs> she was sitting there and I'm like sitting behind so I'm seeing this happen. It was big and hairy and I was just like, um, okay, I just saw that. It's weird how you look back and you're like, how am I not, not like scarred for life? But I mean, I feel lucky because even though I couldn't have this talk about queer stuff, like I said, my mom was just so straightforward with it. This is how it works. And I was like, okay, cool. I got it. You know, and I think if a lot more people were like that with their kids from a because kids just want the information. You know, the, I wasn't even ready for all the, like I said, the jokes and all the innuendos and all that until later. Mm -hmm. But having that information younger, it's like, oh, okay, I got it. You know, kind of, you don't really, it didn't scar me, really. Unfortunately, as a kid in the 70s and early 80s, um, a black kid in New York City, a lot of the things that I heard were, of course, very negative. You know, calling somebody a faggot or whatever was a pejorative thing. Um, so much so that I didn't even think about the sex aspect. It was more, I don't think a lot of us did. I think it was more just that insult. You know, we, I don't think we really thought about the sex of it. Of course, years later, I found out that a lot of boys were having sex with other boys or having sexual contact, which I did not, and I feel very cheated. I can remember being uh, maybe 12 or 13 and going to like the corner store and like they had porn mags in the thing and like trying to pick up a gay one to see uh, what it was all about and being like, okay, wow, there's a penis. Just before we left uh, Brooklyn to move to Queens, I was like between nine and 11. This kid moved in around the block. His name was Conrad from what I remember. He had a younger brother who I did not like as much, but Conrad was like my age. And, you know, I'd played with other kids on the block and we were friends and all that. But this one kid, Conrad, something about him, like I really just wanted to hang out with him all the time, you know. And looking back, I thought he was really handsome. Looking back, I'm like, yeah, I guess I kind of had a thing for that kid, you know. And I remember his brother was kind of annoying, the younger one, who always wanted to hang out more than Conrad did. And I was like, yeah, but I really want to hang out with your brother. We would play basketball, even though I hated basketball, in the backyard and stuff like that. So I think he might have been my first crush. 
I went away to college in 1980, the fall of 1987, in New Hampshire, which is very different from New York. The campus had an intranet. And there was this um, chat thing that you could log into on the campus. I had to come up with a screen name. I chose uh, Banana Fish Bones because I was heavily into The Cure at the time, and that was a Cure song. And people would chat, you know, and people got so into it that they became sort of like these characters. Anyway, I discovered this one guy. His screen name was Why Not Bi. I think I just sent him a message saying, what does that mean? He was like, well, I'm, I'm bisexual, so that's why my screen name is that. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, well, are you gay or bi? And I was like, well, I'm just, I'm just experimenting. Eventually, I invited him to come to my dorm room <laughs> to explore, um, which was kind of risky because the dorm room that back then, it was just a one room with two beds. I had a roommate, and he actually, my roommate was from Queens, Italian boy from Queens. But I guess I must have known his schedule. I knew that I'd have the room to myself for a while. So this guy comes to the door. It's a big guy. It's like my first bear. <laughs> Maybe that's where it all started. He was a chef. Um, and I realized he had two screen names that he used on that thing. One was his regular, like, to interact with people, and the other one was for cruising. Why not buy? So he came to the room. He brought porn magazines and Crisco in, rolled up in foil. He was a chef um, for, for lube. And I, I mean, I was so clueless. And I was just like, all right, cool. So we got naked <laughs> and... Uh, we sat on my bed, and he was kind of, um, I just whipped off my clothes. He, was, he took off his clothes, too, but he was kind of, I remember flipping through the, um, the porn and, like, working himself up, and I was already, like, ready. And then we just started stroking each other. And, and of course, you know, it's like my first time. I was, like, 18, and I was, like, instantly hard, like, right away. And he was, like, trying to look through the, the, um, the, the porn. I was so focused on, like, a naked man in front of me. Like, I didn't even remember what the porn... I did not need the porn. I'm assuming it was gay porn. And so we Crisco'd up, and, like, I came in, like, two seconds, of course, because it was, you know, like, my first time. And, but it was funny because I remember it was the like, first time I heard somebody say, wow, you've got a really nice dick. And I I don't know how I... It, it came to me to make the joke, well, you know what they say about black men. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, I had no experience at the time. Like, how did I even come up with that joke at the time? But anyway, whatever. And as he was leaving, he's like, so, have you made a decision? Like, are you what? And I was like, well, I'm still questioning. But then after him, I met a couple of other people through that thing. Um, there was this one older, he was a really old guy. He was, like, probably in his 60s, who I used to meet in one of the gym locker rooms. And he would just, like, jerk me off and probably suck me a little bit, too. Um, and then a couple of guys met, you know, oh, the third floor bathroom in the library, you know, and if you stick your dick under the um, partition in one of the stalls, that kind of thing. And so I had a few of those experiments. And I did that there in New Hampshire and then came back to New York and was like that's, that summer after my first year um, that's, it was when I went to the David for the first time. People complain now about how the apps and online stuff has ruined some of the bar scene and some of the cruising because people can sit in their living room now and, you know, dial up a, a hookup or whatever. And I can see that. Um, but it's true. Back then, you know, it was kind of essential that you had to go out and, you know, figure out how you were going to meet people. And I mean, it may have seemed like it was harder than it is now with the apps or whatever, but it was also, more, I think, more exciting, definitely, because you just never knew what was going to happen, you know? The early 90s was a really great time to explore your gay sexuality in New York City if you wanted to actually have sex, yes. Yeah.
I was away at college, but I would come back, you know, and like summertime or whatever. Mm. I'm a music nerd. I like to go to a lot of concerts and stuff like that. So there was a place I used to go called The Ritz on 54th Street. Getting off the subway and walking there, there was a, a gay porn theater called The David. One day I was just like, let me just go in <laughs> and see what the hell this is all about. And, you know, it was a th- a theater with seats and stuff, but and there were guys sitting around jerking off. And then there was like an upstairs area, which was like a big kind of a back room. They had a few video screens, which provided a little bit of light, but there was just guys wandering around just having sex. And that's, I guess, where I also first came into contact with poppers, because I'd be like, what are they doing over there? And, you know, maybe I got involved with someone and they offered me the, and I was like, okay, I'll try it. I'm pretty sure it's probably where I first did it. But, um, yeah, and then I just started going to the David all the time. <laughs> like, it was terrible. I had a summer job, and I remember, like, on Fridays, I would just go to the David, like, after work. Just because it was like, oh, my God, there's sex. I almost hate to admit it, but I think that's when I had the final realization that I'm actually gay. I remember one day either going into or leaving the David and thinking, huh, well, you know, I guess I am just gay. <laughs> because here I am, I've been cruising, trying to have sex with these men, and... Let me just finally accept the identity. You know what I mean? Like, I hadn't really thought about it before that. It was just all my, like, dick doing the the thinking. I think The Monster was the first gay bar that I hung out at regularly. You know, The Monster is in Greenwich Village, the West Village, and it's right across from Stonewall. It's, you know, it's Christopher Street is right there. So, um, you know, and I was young and I had, like, no money. So I would go to the monster, like they would start charging, I remember start charging $5 after 10 or something. And I would get there at like 9.45 just so I can get in for free and uh, hang out in Cruise Men. Um, but I guess gradually I started just going down Christopher Street just to see what else was around. So, you know, they had, um, I guess the hangar was there and ties, but I didn't really go into those bars. I just kept on going and I went down to the piers. You know, it's turned into a beautiful park now. But back then it was, a dilapidated pier literally falling apart. You'd have to watch where you put your feet because you might go through a hole. So there'd be people laying out naked, sunbathing, which was fun. And then there'd be guys, you know, smoking weed. There'd be like, you know, uh, and broad daylight. At nighttime, there's more cruising for sex because you could sort of get away with it. But at nighttime, there was also, if you've seen Paris is Burning, that whole scene of the kids out there dancing and voguing and hanging out. And some of them were hustlers and some of them were just kids who were from different parts of the city where they couldn't be gay. And they were coming down there to to be openly gay. But at nighttime, sometimes I'd go down there because it was an opportunity to cruise for sex. And I don't think I actually had a lot of sex out there. I may have, like, jerked off watching people have sex or whatever. I may have hooked up with one or two guys. And there were a couple of different piers. There was one, like the main one. If you walked just straight down Christopher Street, there was that one big pier right at the end if you just crossed the highway. But if you walked uptown a little bit, there was a couple of other ones, and they would get progressively more dilapidated as you go up. So there were two more. And I remember there was one that was really rickety. And then I remember if you walked even further up, there was a huge warehouse that was abandoned. And I just remember because, you know, I mean, I was young and exploring. So one day in in daylight, I was walking up there and I was like, what is this warehouse? And it was like a big open fence. I just walked through the fence. I walked inside and there was a a van in there. Uh, And I looked in the van and I could tell that people had been having sex in the van because they were like, you know, there's evidence. Then I walked to like the back and there was a little pier over by the water. I looked down, there was somebody 
couple of people down there nude sunbathing. So I thought, huh, okay, so this is a cruising spot too. That's good to know. I think around that same time, um, you know, it was the early 90s. So like I said, backroom bars were coming back to New York and I was experiencing that. There was a bar called The Comeback, which was on the West Side Highway and like 12th Street or something like that. That bar had two floors, I remember, and you go in through the, the ground floor and there was a back room and stuff. But again, it was like right across from the pier. So, you know, you could go in there and maybe I meet somebody and go across the street and have sex. Or you could just stay in there and have sex in the back room. Or I mean, there was just so many options, you know. And also they had what they called the trucks. I don't know if you've heard about the trucks, but... Um, on the West Side Highway, there were a lot of meatpacking plants and um, different um, warehouses. So sometimes they would leave the trucks there empty, and people would go into the trucks and have sex. <laughs> I didn't really see a lot of that. I mean, I always heard the stories. And then one day I discovered, like, oh, these are the trucks that I've heard so much about. And I would look in, and I'd see, like, you know, maybe a few discarded condoms and things like that. I think by that point, maybe some, some of the people had started going to the backroom bars instead of the trucks. Even the old Spike and the Eagle, which were sort of on the West Side Highway in the 21st, they were a block away from each other. One was on 20th Street, one was on 21st. Now it's all, like, expensive apartments and stuff. Back then it was, like, parking garages and stuff like that. There would be people having sex on the street, like, in a doorway or an alleyway. You know, if the bar was about to close and you're on your way home, you're like, well, let me just go see who's having sex on the street around the corner. And you could do that back then. And then I don't know how I heard about Central Park. You know, it's one of those bits of information that somebody just tells you and you just, okay. So I decided to go and check it out one day and I discovered the Rambles. And the Rambles is this big um, area, very wooded, where you, you know, there's lots of twisting trails and lots of bushes and, and these areas where people, guys can go. And there's like a peninsula, actually, this long peninsula where you can go day or night. There would be people there having sex. It was exciting, but it was also a little dangerous because there's also like bird watchers who would come through occasionally because they're looking for birds and actually trying to enjoy nature. I was in Central Park once and it was getting dark. And I'm trying to weigh like, well, will it be good for sex if it's dark or will it be really dangerous? Or, you know, and should I go? And as I'm contemplating this, I see this person coming and I started to sort of, oh, here's somebody I could probably cruise. And the person was noticing me too. And then as he got closer, I realized it was my best friend. And we both had the same reaction, like, oh, it's you. My best friend James and I, we had gone to pretty much all the different cruising spots and sex parties over the years. So we're like, all right, well, at least we have each other now. So we can cruise for like a little bit longer and then we can get out of here before we get killed. One of the reasons we became best friends is because we both like to go cruising a lot. The same club where I met the, the boy that I fell in love with, I met him in that same club, Zone Decay. I had gone to see a band called Concrete Blonde. It was at a venue that was across the street from the old Times building. I went to see them like a Thursday night, and then the Friday night I went to Zone Decay, and I was, for the first time, and my eyes hadn't adjusted to the darkness. I was going through the back room, and suddenly this arm shot out of the darkness and grabbed mine, and was like, hey, weren't you at the Concrete Blonde concert last night? Now, and you know, there was music and stuff going, but this is a back room, and so it was kind of jarring, like, holy shit, like, who is this guy? And so I was like, uh, yeah, and uh, he was playing with somebody at the time when he was doing this, and it was a bigger guy, and I don't know how he looked around the guy and saw me, but he, um, he had a thing for black men back then. I ended up on, like, against the wall next to him while he was, he was playing with this big guy, and so some other guy came along and I started playing with this guy, and all of a sudden, while I'm playing with this guy, that St. James turns and goes, wow, you guys got awfully familiar awfully quickly. And I'm like, who the hell is this person? And why does he keep talking to me? Like, So eventually we ended up like 
being together and he was like walking me around the club and showing because I was like oh this is my first time and he was introducing me to people because that's how he is I ended up he lived in Hoboken at the time where I ended up going back to his place and we spent the whole weekend together you know we watched like TV we had a little bit of sex and and then I think Sunday we came into the city and we went to a gay porn theater together and it was like the first time we really cruised together. And then, you know, we, we talked on the phone and stuff. It became clear to me that we were like meant to be girlfriends rather than boyfriends. I think he kind of wanted a boyfriend at the time. So we would go to all kinds of parties and things together. But the, the thing about it was that he was older, that he was a few years older than me and I was still learning, I was still experimenting. But I remember going to these, some of these clubs with him and like the manhole, I remember, and we, we got in there and you're supposed to like take your clothes off or whatever. I just remember him taking off all his clothes except for his, his boots and just like strutting into the party with just no fear, no, you know. And I was still like, oh, I'll wear my boxer briefs and my t-shirt. I tell him that to this day. Like, I just remember how much bravado you had and it was totally easy and fine for you in those situations. And I think I learned a lot of that from him, like, you know, just being around him. And so it made all the cruising and the sex like, it just made it easier because first of all I had somebody to do it with and second of all he was so comfortable with it it didn't make me freak out about it even things that we've done like we have no boundaries anymore because we've known each other for so long like I remember we went to um, Bear Invasion in DC we had just gotten into the hotel room and I went to take a shower and I heard there was a knock at the door so he went to answer the door and when I came out he was sucking on some guy's dick and I was like oh all right, well, don't mind me, boys. Let me just get my boots. I'm going to put my clothes on and go. Then later that night, we had been to a party where we had been drinking and stuff, and I came back to the room, and this guy that we both know was basically eating his ass on the bed. So, like, I came in the room, and, like, a normal person would have been like, oh, sorry, and, like, walked out. But I was like, you know, this is, this is my girlfriend. So I walked in, I was like, hey, what's up, you know? And I went over <laughs> and sat in the chair and started eating. We had Entenmann's pecan Danish ring, and I started eating that. And I was having a conversation with James while this guy was eating his ass. And at some point I said to, I was like, oh, I hope you don't mind. Like, and they was like, no, nah, no, nah, don't worry about it. I went back to eating James' ass. So we, James and I continued chatting. And at one point James turned and he said, you know what? I bet you'll never, ever eat another Entenmann's Danish ring without thinking of this moment. <laughs> and so it's true. Every now and then on Facebook, I'll, he'll or I will post a picture of an Entenmann's Danish ring on his Facebook wall. <laughs> so that's the nature of our relationship, yeah. One of James's boyfriends actually used to chastise us for that. He was like, you guys have sex like it's pickup basketball. And I was like, you know what? That's pretty accurate because straight men will go to a, a playground and meet a bunch of guys that they've never met before and have a game and maybe even bond and, you know, form some kind of camaraderie. Same way we go and have sex, you know? I mean, it's, it's kind of similar. favorite sex party that I actually still go to is called New York Jacks. It's a masturbation party. I think they just celebrated their 39th anniversary earlier this year, so they've been going for a while. It's all like body contact and mutual masturbation and no sucking, no fucking kind of thing. So a lot of married guys go there, like straight married guys. And so that's a party where a situation where I definitely you meet a lot of guys who are like have wives, have kids. At least to them, it's not about being gay or whatever. It's about this sort of almost like a male bonding, which I find really fascinating. I met two twin Italian bodybuilders. One had a fiance, one had a girlfriend. Because I just remember going to the party and I saw this big hulking guy, you know, he's hot. And I fooled around with him. You know, we jerked off, we kissed, we did all that stuff. And then one time I went and I saw him. 
And, but he was acting kind of distant, like, you know, he, he didn't recognize me. And so we ended up playing anyway. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, that's not him. He's got a twin. Holy shit. So, yeah. And so then I saw the first one after. I was like, oh, I think I met your brother. And he's like, oh, yeah. I've seen him, the, the first one, since, you know, like 20-something years later at New York Jacks. And we chatted, and he was like, oh, yeah, my brother's no longer with us. Brother passed away. He's got a tattoo of him. But, yeah, we reminisced. He was like, yeah, I was in my 30s then, and I'm in my 50s now. I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> join the club. So I actually met my husband at that party. Yeah, my husband and I met, you know where the Apple store is, and you know there's that triangle building right there on, like, 14th and 9th? So that triangle building used to, was a notorious sex club called Jay's, Jay's the Hangout. Twice a week, they, New York Jacks would have their party there on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So, yeah, my husband and I met on a Thursday night at Jay's, which is funny because eventually it became a, a restaurant. And so when we had our 10-year anniversary, we decided to go to that restaurant to have dinner. And we just sat there like, well, if these walls could talk about, you know, what went on. I am a big fan of kissing, like deep kissing. So when I, when I really get into it, sometimes I can draw them more into it. I think it's also kissing with body contact. You know, I'm a very tactile person. My friends and I have a joke. It's not about the, the destination. It's more about the journey kind of thing. So I'm more about like, okay, fine, you want to get fucked. We can get to that. But before we get to that, I'd like to explore all these other different things. So there's kissing, there's body contact, there's you know, the nipple play, there's, you know, sucking, there's all of that. Fucking is great, but it's not my be-all and end-all for sex. Masturbation has become a much different thing to me now that I'm approaching 50. I was never really that into it. And then, and then I started going out and cruising, and so that kind of took the place of masturbation. But after being married for 20 years, one day I discovered there was a website called Big Muscle Bears, and they had a video chat room. There's a lot of guys, you know, just sitting there, you know, showing their chest, whatever. But then there was, also, there was always guys jerking off. And so I started watching and started participating and then moved on to um, Cam4, I think is a website where people jerk off and stuff. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you're married for a certain number of years and the sex slows down. Or, you know, maybe your husband likes to go to bed early, but you're still up or whatever. And gradually I got into the masturbation thing. And then I realized that, like... I learned about edging. Part of the appeal of the edging is that, you know, if you edge your penis, you know, you jerk off for like an hour or two or whatever without coming. When you do finally come, it's like your eyes will roll up in your head. You'll, it's amazing. But the, the other side to that is like now it takes me a long time to come, which for me is fine because I don't mind hooking up with somebody and making them come twice in a night and then maybe I'll come at the end. I like long, long sessions. For me, because I've only started prep, uh, it's been like a year and a half, almost two years. So I'm, I'm a little bit late coming to it. A lot of people have been doing it for longer. Now they have all of these sort of circuit parties that are sort of mini versions of the black party here in New York, and they, they travel a bit around a bit. There's meat, there's brute. And so these are like big dance parties, but they also have back room areas. You know, you, I would go in there and I'm like, wow, okay, there's a lot of barebacking going on. And for me, you know, even though I was going to all the, the clubs and cruising uh, spots and things, if I was going to fuck somebody, it's condoms. And so uh, for me, a lot of my backroom sex was making out, sucking, not really so much anal. 
the first time I went to Brute, it was downtown, and I remember they had this backroom area. I went to this backroom area, this very cute young Italian guy. He was just getting plowed by like four or five different guys, and he looked he looked over at me, and he was like, yeah. And he came over, and he was like, I want you to fuck me right now. And I was like, um... Well, I don't have a condom on me. I felt like such a dork. And he just said to me point blank, listen, if you're going to come to this party, you, you better be on prep. Like, what do you mean? You're not on prep? So, yeah, it took me a while because I was, you know, for a long time, I was like, yeah, the prep thing and I should get on it. But, you know, it doesn't protect, protect against everything. So I, it took me a while. And so I have barebacked a few times now uh, in public spaces, like at one, some of those parties. Um, it's it's just taken me a while. I'm still not quite used to it. I'm still kind of like, I'm still that condom boy. I mean, I went to, um, you know, Stonewall 50 just happened, right? So they had um, uh, they had a rally in Central Park. And as we're sitting down, Larry Kramer comes on to speak. And God bless Larry Kramer, but he, oh my God, he is so bitter right now about the state of things. You know, and he was just like, you know, and all you guys care about now is your prep and your barebacking and nobody cares about AIDS anymore. And... So, yeah, I, I definitely feel for that um, sort of older generation that was fighting the fight, like literally, you know, in the streets fighting for eight. And now really people are just barebacking willy nilly. And I mean, I was I was kind of prudish when it when they too. with the I was just like, but you guys like, you know, there's other diseases. And, you know, what if it doesn't really work? And, you know, it's, it's so new. And finally, I had to like just relax and try it. So one of the good things about prep that you have to go for your checkup. Mm-hmm. every couple months just to make sure everything's okay. And I, that's a really good thing because now so many guys are catching things earlier. I'm in a, a Facebook chat group. And so I just remember one day somebody posted, oh, guys, by the way, I went to this party, the sex party the other day, and some of you guys were there. And I just want you to know I was just tested positive for, you know, chlamydia or something. So I just want to let everybody know. And, you know, it's like... I kind of feel like, wow, that's kind of the way things should be. Like, people should be able to, you know, let people know and put the word out there, like, okay, get yourself checked. And, you know, if we had had that kind of access years before, I mean, things would have been a lot different. So there's a sex party here in the city called Nubian Dukes, essentially for black men. Uh, and they have it in actually a location now, which is the same location where they have New York Jacks. So, and you know, it's sort of well lit for Jacks and you can see and it's relaxed and the music isn't too loud. You go there for the Nubian Dukes party, it's really dark. They crank up the music really high. There's some kind of vibe of, you know, we know some of you are on the DL and you may not really want to be seen. It feels like there's an element, a little bit of an element of shame that's still present there. And it just, it really freaks me out. And it's a very anal sex heavy party as well. The top bottom thing, like there's a whole stigma about bottoming. And so I've seen actually people who are in that, in that party get upset like, like somebody will touch their ass and they're like, I'm a, I'm a top. Like, why are you touching my, you know, I'm like, dude, it's a sex party. Relax, you know, like, but again, that has to do with the black community in general, not really being as accepting. And then black men feeling this extra pressure to be like a real man. And so if you're seen giving up your ass or if you, you know, there's some shame there. And I'm like, I just don't have time for that. (laughs) I really don't. I'm like, I consider myself more top only because it's more natural to me, I guess, in a way. And I haven't had as much experience bottoming. I, like I said, in the, the late 30s into the 40s, I, I started to bottom more just occasionally. And, but it's, it's still something that I need to 
sort of work my way up to, and it has to be the, like, I have to really be into the guy, really be into the guy, it has to, the vibe has to be right. I have a black gay friend who I know primarily from bars and clubs and stuff, we've gotten to know each other. He's a big muscle guy, shaved head and all that. Um, He's very outgoing, very popular and all that. He's Mr. Alpha Top, right? So when we first met, we met on, on a dance floor at a club, and, you know, occasionally I get these um, big sort of bodybuilder guys who come up to me and they want me to fuck them because, you know, it, I guess maybe it's harder if you're a big guy to find somebody else who's big to fuck you because they all want you to be the top, right? So when he approached me, I thought, okay, great. Here comes a guy who is going to want to get fucked. But it turns out he wants to be Mr. Alpha Top. So we have this long-running joke. He's like, yeah, so when are we going to do it? And I'm like, look, you can fuck me, but you have to let me fuck you too. And he's like, no, 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 I can't. I, uh, you know, he gets into this whole thing. I'm like, you know, you, we could have been fucking already, but you are putting up this, you know, and it's just, it's become this joke because we're, we're almost like sisters now after so long. And, and I've met a couple of black men who are like that, who are just like, you know, they, they can't let go of that, that role. And I'm like, you're a big guy and I, I think it'd be fun if, if you fuck me, but reciprocal. And they just can't, they just can't. So, and I'm always like, look, the first time it happened to, it felt weird. I, it wasn't like the greatest feeling in the world, but after, over time and, and poppers, I mean, you know, whatever you need to try. I mean, it takes practice. It's not natural to everybody, but especially when you know it's somebody's first time, you got to really, you know, go slow. And I mean, I think you you asked that question, like, what's my best move? Like, when it comes to fucking, I mean, if I'm topping somebody, I always start off slow. Because, I mean, you got to feel the person out to figure out what feels good for them. I mean, I don't feel like I'm having good sex unless the other person is having good sex, too. You know what I mean? And so I'm always trying to read the other person. And, and like I said, I last a long time. So I will go through periods. I'll, it'll start off slow and easy. It might get rough and hard for a while. It's, it's really about reading the other person and taking your time, I think. That's the other reason why my friend, the big black guy, I, you know, I have reservations about letting him fuck me anyway, even though I kind of want to, because I've seen him in action with other people. He's one of those selfish tops. He's very like, I'm going to fuck you into oblivion, and that's that. And I'm like, yeah, you're not doing that to me. <laughs> you know, I know a lot of black men who get very offended if somebody approaches them saying, you know, I want your big black dick. Your BBC, big black cock. Sometimes I'm offended by it. Depends on how the person says it, how they approach it. I have uh, one fuck buddy who, you know, we hooked up for, you know, pretty regularly for years. I could tell he was always being very cautious not to say the the B word, the black word. And then one day, maybe I said it, and it just he just like ah, oh. <laughs> he really got into it. But it was it was okay because I brought it up, you know, kind of thing. <sighs> The whole fetishizing thing, it, it depends. It depends on the person. It depends on the situation. I've been in situations where, social situations, where I've seen, like, a guy, let's say a white guy, who will go and hit on every black guy in the room. <laughs> I know he's going to come over and, like, try to, you know, and there, there have been times when I'm like, all right, but then there are times when I'm like, okay, I'm going to be the one black guy that he doesn't get to, <laughs> you know, just because, just because. I have friends who get into, like, fetish play where it's racial, who, you know, I have this a younger friend of mine who, um, he's kind of like from the hood. They would want him to come over and be extra hood, like, you know, and dress this certain And I'm like, you really do that? And he's like, yeah, hell yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, that's your thing. But I can't, like, the the, the race play and the, the, you know, I can't. I'm not into that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
don't be so freaked out about your body because I think I had body issues before I started having sex. It's not such a crazy thing to, to share your body with somebody else. You know, you get used to it. You'll become more comfortable with your body at some point. Just give yourself time. It's fine to explore, but definitely set your boundaries about what the things that you want to do, the things you don't want to do, and try to stick to those as much as possible. If you want to explore something that's a little bit more risky, you should probably wait until you're in something more serious, a relationship that's a little bit more serious with somebody that you feel more comfortable with that you know. My friendship with James has allowed me to have this outlet where we can discuss anything, the most intimate of details, and joke about it and laugh about it and all that. And so I've had that, you know, my whole adult life, which is really great. Some gay men don't have that. One of the great things about being gay is that as gay men, we get to decide what masculinity and what being a man means for us. And I think straight men could do it too, but they're not allowed to as much. And we have a greater freedom if we choose to accept it, where we can define masculinity and how we want to be men. We challenge the typical ideas of what that means. And I think that's important, you know, because I see so many gay men who are so locked into, you know, ideas of masculinity. And even now, like, you know, we were talking about how the bear thing and the daddy thing have become so mainstream. And so much of that is wrapped up in this uber-masculine image, which, you know, it's fine and it can be sexy and all that, but it can also be a trap and it can also be a little boring. I mean, I love a guy who can, you know, you might look at him and say, oh, wow, Mr. Butch over there. But then he can, like, you know, turn around and flip his hair and, you know, snap and be a girl, too. I mean, I think that's, I think that's one of the real great pleasures of being gay that we should cherish, that ability to just be kind of fluid in how we represent ourselves and to own it and to enjoy it. Well, that's it for this edition of Fruit Bowl. Thanks to Shavit for connecting me with Stephen please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com, where you can find an archive of past episodes and read some information on interview opportunities, including a detailed list of questions that I ask. You can also find information on how you can support Fruit Bowl production efforts through our Patreon. You can also find out more about our fiscal partnership with Northwest Film Forum, where you can make donations that are tax-deductible. Check out our queer promotional partners at Tickle.life, as well as NYC Inferno Party on Instagram. Thanks again to our podcast promotional partners, Matt Baum's The Sewers of Paris, Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, Drew and Glenn's Gayest Episode Ever, and Dave and Alonzo's Linoleum Knife. Fruit Bowl's a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Be safe, be strong, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.